let's uh, open in prayer. Father, I thank you, uh, Lord, for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the word of God, Lord, that uh, Lord, gives us clear instruction, Lord, on how to live, uh, how to uh, follow after you. Lord, it, it tells us how we should walk. And we, we thank you, Lord, for setting that example for us to see in the life of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we go through this gospel, Lord, we're walking with Jesus. We're seeing, uh, Lord, how you handled situations in life, how you handled uh, ministry opportunities. As, as you even encountered opposition, how you handled those uh, in opposition, Lord, to you. And Lord, that we would learn, Lord, from your example. Lord, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark's uh, Gospel, chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 this morning. I titled the message, Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. And two weeks ago, we ended chapter 2 with Jesus walking with his disciples through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And let's read it again in chapter 2, verse 23. It says, now it happened that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why do your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, and this is how Jesus closed out, if you want to say, this dialogue with these Pharisees. He says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. These were words in the ears of these Pharisees that really enraged them. Not only did he refer to himself as the Son of Man, but he also said, I'm also Lord of the Sabbath. One commentator wrote this. He says, The showbread was never so sacred as when it was used to feed a starving man. The Sabbath was never so sacred as when it was used to help those who needed help. The final arbiter in the use of all things is love and not the law. And this is really important for us to know because Jesus closed out really this conversation with them by making that statement about the Sabbath and him being Lord of the Sabbath. His ability, he was the actual creator of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He ruled the Sabbath. He could change the Sabbath. He could do whatever he wanted with the Sabbath. 
And here, these Pharisees that were hearing these words off, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. In the Torah, the purpose of the Sabbath day observance was to remind the Hebrew people of two important events in history. The first was the creation of the world. We read about that in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, 1 and 2, but it was the creation of the world that was an important event for the Hebrews to remember. And also their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And so we might ask, why were these religious leaders... Why were they so bent on finding fault with Jesus and trapping Jesus on the Sabbath? Uh, I think what we can see, and as we go through the gospel, we'll see this even more so, that it was really an issue of their heart. That's why they had a problem with Jesus. Uh, It wasn't so much a theological issue. It was because they had a heart issue. We know that these religious leaders, they were becoming very threatened by Jesus. They were jealous over Jesus and the ministry of his popularity that was growing. We also see in chapter 1, verse 22, that Jesus, that he taught with authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. That caused some stirring in their own hearts. He demonstrated his authority by miracles, by healing people, by forgiving sins. And that caused an issue within the hearts of these Pharisees. He claimed to be the Son of God. He said that he was the Son of Man. And he also said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. All three of those terms pointing to to his deity, his humanity, but these were terms that the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. The Sabbath in Hebrew is Shabbat. And it means this by definition, it means rest or to cease. To the Jews, the Sabbath began on Friday evening. And it ended on Saturday evening, and it was one of the Ten Commandments that they were called upon by God through Moses to observe the Sabbath day. The question might be asked, though, when did the idea of the Sabbath begin? When did all of this thinking about the Sabbath begin? If you go back and you can turn in Genesis chapter 2, Going back to the beginning, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended His work. That might be something that you would underline. That God ended His work, which He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all of His work, which He had done, Then God blessed the seventh day and He sanctified it because in it He rested from all of His work which God had created and made. And so going back to the creation uh, of this world, God took this 
seventh day, six days of creation, and on the seventh day, God rested. Now, we know that he didn't rest because he was physically tired. He doesn't grow physically tired and wear out through that. But he did all of his creation in those six days. And on the seventh day, he took a, that particular day and he set it apart from the other six days and said, this is going to be the day of rest. It's a time to stop laboring. It's a time of rest. It's a time to stop working. And it is also a time of reflection for the people of God. It was a time to consider God. It was a time that they would be able to remember back that He was the Creator of all things. And that God had set aside the seventh day as a day of rest, a time to cease from working. God would not begin working again until chapter 3 of Genesis. Remember, he created it all, and then he rested. In chapter 3, we see the fall of man. And God would begin to work again. But his work now was not going to be a work of creation, but it was going to be a work of redemption for mankind. Uh, These are all things that I believe were shadows. In other words, Genesis, when God... Uh, rested on that seventh day. This was going to be the basis or the shadow of something more to come. Remember, the Sabbath law had not even yet been given to the Jews. This was simply a shadow of something that was going to come. When he rested, Again, it was something that was going to become clear to the Jew, but it was become going to be a shadow of better things to come. It would not be until Exodus that Moses would lead the children of Israel from their bondage of the Egyptians into the wilderness. And it was there that they were going to receive the law of God from Moses. You can turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, we have the first mention of this word Sabbath in the Old Testament. It says uh, that the Sabbath rest for the children of Israel. The children of Israel were given manna at this time. Remember this manna that God fed them from heaven. It was to be gathered. It was to be consumed on a daily basis. It took work for them to go out and to gather the manna, but it had to be done on a daily basis. And it was on the sixth day that God allowed the children of Israel as they were in their wandering there, that he would allow them to gather twice as much on the sixth day so that they would honor the Sabbath day rest and they would not go out to gather. We read in uh, verses 23, it says, Then Moses said to the children of Israel, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourself all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, 
nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. In other words, you're going to work those six days. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. There will be any manna out there. Now it happened that some of the people were told they went out on the seventh day to gather. What did they do wrong? They didn't listen. They weren't listening to what was said to them by Moses. They went out to gather, but they found none. In verse 28, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So we have here again now this occasion where Sabbath is being introduced to God's people, Israel. The next time that we see the word Sabbath is in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. We read in verses 8 to 11, which is out of the Ten Commandments, the one Sabbath law. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And then look what it says in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Isn't that interesting that in the commandments that he's given to the children of Israel through Moses, he takes them back to the creation where God said on the seventh day he rested from all of his creative work. He's showing them something that is a shadow of better things to come. And I want you to keep that in your mind. When we read in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 1, it says under this new covenant that we live in as Christians today, the new covenant after the cross, it says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. In other words, the law. The law was not able to perfect what only God could do through Jesus Christ. The law couldn't do it. Later on in Exodus, in in chapter 31... When God was calling the artisans for the building of the tabernacle, God reiterated the Sabbath command because the builders were still, set, uh, were still to set aside the work of the tabernacle. One day they were to rest. One day they were to reflect. They weren't to work seven days a week 
on the tabernacle. Exodus 31.12 And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is, and this is what's important, for it is a sign between me and you. Who's he talking about? It's a, it's a sign. He's speaking to the children of Israel. He says, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does not any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among the people. Really harsh, isn't it? Right to the point. Very strict in what God is instructing them on. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign. Here it is again. It's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord, here he goes again, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Again, a shadow of better things to come. Why were these Jews so trying to trap Jesus on the Sabbath question, on the Sabbath law? It's because Jesus was keeping everything else. They're trying to trap him on this one law that they had themselves taken and distorted it and made it be something that it was never intended to be. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8, verse uh, 4 to 6, we read, For if he were on earth, speaking about Jesus Christ, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy, here it is again, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator. And listen to what he says he is mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So what does the book of Hebrews tell us? What is the book of Hebrews about? It's a better covenant. It's better promises. It's the better sacrifice. All of that is seen in the new covenant as Christians. We live under this new covenant in Christ. And so my point is, is why were these Pharisees so bent on one to try to trap Jesus and use the Sabbath law to trap him. All of this was going to be a shadow. When Jesus says that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, all of this was going to be a shadow of better things to come. Paul wrote in, uh, to the church in Colossians, um, he says in chapter 2, verse 16, he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath." 
which is, again, here he says it again, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Paul makes it very clear, I believe here in Colossians, that foods and days, uh, as are observed under the Mosaic law, they're not binding upon the people of the new covenant. They're not binding upon those after the cross, those that came to a saving knowledge of Christ. The shadow has passed and the reality has come. And so the new covenant Christians today, they're not bound to regulations of food and regulations of days and certain things because all of these things were shadows of things that were going to be better after Christ. Remember in our study in 1 Timothy 4, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Now you don't have to get all worked up about what we're talking about. Don't eat packaged goods and all these things that Paul is talking about. He's just simply saying that there are are no foods that restrictions under the new covenant. We're not held to those things to have to obey certain dietary laws that were given to God's people. This is what people try to do today. They try to bind people up still with these laws that I believe under the new covenant we've been set free from. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, we read uh, once again, Observe the Sabbath day. This is, again, I believe this is speaking to the nation of Israel. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servants may rest as well as you. And then he says this, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So what is the Sabbath day rest about? What are, what, what are we as Christians today supposed to do in regards to the Sabbath day? I believe that for the Jew, it was always intended to be a time of remembrance. It was a time for the Jews to reflect back on the creator of the heavens and the earth. It was a time for them to reflect back on how God had delivered them by a, a mighty hand and a strong arm from the bondage of the Egyptians. That's what I believe even for New Covenant Christians, New Testament Christians, we come together on the first day of the week, on Sunday here. We're worshiping, we're remembering, we're looking. When we partake of the communion table, we're thinking back to the cross, we're remembering what, what Christ has done. But as far as us being under uh, a Sabbath day, remember that's Saturday, not Sunday, uh, I don't believe that we're held. But in practicality, what are we doing here today? We're doing what the Jews were in, 
intend what they were supposed to do, and that was to remember, to reflect, to stay focused, not to be busy about going out and working seven days a week. Even if that meant doing something for God and, and building the temple, they were to separate a day out of the week so that they would not get out of focus, not get their eyes off of God. And so in very practical ways, God was showing them something that they, he knew that they would forget. And we would do the same. If you were out, you know, you, you forgot church, you forgot gathering together, you forgot your time in the Word, you forgot, you know, because for the Christian, it's not just all summed up on a Sunday. It, it's summed up on every day of the week that we should be seeking the Lord. In Psalm 92, uh, the title, if you uh, looked in your Bible, you might see that it says that it's a song for the Sabbath day. Listen to what it says. This is what it should be and intended to be. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O, Mo o Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of ten strings and on a lute and on a harp with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in your works of your hands. O oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. And you could read the rest of Psalm 92, but it's a song that would have been sang even on the Sabbath day, a time of reflection, a time of, of wonder, a time of awe, a time of reflection back and looking back. What we've seen is that the Sabbath law was very specific. It was very strict. As a matter of fact, if you violated it, 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 it could be death. It was binding upon the children of Israel. It was instructions by God to the nation of Israel. That's important to note. But the Pharisees, they began to distort God's original intention of the Sabbath rest. They began to add man-made rules to it. They began to add in their traditions to the law. And not just on the Sabbath, but a lot of the laws. They added their traditions and man-made uh, additions to it. The scribes and the Pharisees, who were the interpreters of the law, the ones that should have known, the keeper of the Mosaic law, they were of the mindset you can, you can't. You can, you can't. You can, you can't. And you know, that's, that was their mantra all the time of what you could do and what you can't do. And they added in all these things and what they became is it became burdens upon the people. Too heavy for them to even bear. And that's what they were really doing is violating really the very essence of what the Sabbath rest was all about. Here they are taking the Lord of the, of the Sabbath and trying to trap him on the one that created it himself. I believe that these Pharisees were wanting to trap Jesus with this Sabbath law uh, because it was really their, their one way that they might trap him. They tried other ways, but we, we're noticing that we've already the third time 
in the beginning of Mark here where these things are happening on the Sabbath. And I think for them to try and trap him on that, they found reason they could, that they could destroy him. Jesus and his apostles, they, they did keep the feast. They did hold to the law even after the cross and the new covenant was established. They held to those things. The early Christian Jews, they still held to what they knew to be God's way. We read that in the early church, and we know that it began to even create difficulties within the church because this new and better way, this new covenant that came as a result of the cross, they, they couldn't let go of the old. They were still, in a sense, trying to mix their new faith in Christ as Messiah with the old, and they were trying to join the two together. And circumcision became a big issue. And all these other laws and, and feasts and laws that they, were, uh, that they knew, that's all they knew as Jews, they were wanting to impose those things upon the church. And it was bringing confusion within the church. They had faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, but they were still trying to live it out. It's almost like saying that it was faith plus works. They were trying to add to their faith, saying unless you're circumcised, unless you keep the law of Moses, you can't even be saved. There are people today that'll tell you that if you don't worship on the Sabbath day, Saturday, that you can question whether or not you're saved because why? You're breaking a holy commandment of God. You're breaking a covenant God has commanded and that goes for us today. Paul warned the Christians in Galatians chapter 4. He says, be careful that you don't turn back. That's my paraphrase. Don't go back. Don't be enslaved again. In verse 9, Paul says this, But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, he warns, he says, how is it that you turn again to the weak and the beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Why do you want to go back to that? You've been set free from it. And why do you want to return again and to put yourself in bondage? It goes on in verse 10. It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And you, you, you want to go back to those things that you've been set free from. So what do we see in the New Testament concerning the Sabbath? If you were to look at all the occasions that we find in the New Testament uh, where the Sabbath is mentioned you'll see that Jesus and his disciples, they kept the feast and they kept the Sabbath rules in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Forty-five times Sabbath is mentioned in the Gospels. Fifty-five times in the New Testament. But only ten of those times is the word Sabbath even mentioned after the cross. So what don't you see in the New Testament? You don't see any mandate by the apostles, by Paul or the apostles. You don't see mandates after the cross where Paul or the apostles were telling the churches that you needed to observe and to keep the Sabbath law. 
We see nine times in the book of Acts the word Sabbath being used. We see it used one time in the book of Colossians. So you don't find it through the New Testament for new covenant Christians that were mandated to keep the Sabbath. This might answer a lot of questions, but I'll tell you, if, you're, uh, if you've come out of being a seven-day Adventist, and there's a number of different groups out there that hold to this, that say that you must observe the Sabbath on S- Saturday, not the first day of the week as we do as Christians on a Sunday, we're violating the Sabbath law. Just like Abraham was, uh, was given this covenant by God, and the, and the, the sign of that, that covenant or that agreement was circumcision. That was the sign that was given to Abraham. Circumcision of the flesh. Well, we know that that circumcision of the flesh was going to be a shadow of something that was going to be better to come. We know that we don't mandate today that every male child on the eighth day has to be circumcised to be saved, though they tried to do that in the early church. We know that it's now not the circumcision of the flesh, but it's the circumcision of the heart that God is concerned. It happens by the Spirit of God. Under the Mosaic Covenant, we have the Sabbath law that fell under that, under Moses. And then we read in in Colossians 2.16, let no one judge you in food and drink regarding festivals or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow, and there it is, it's a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So here's the good news, church. The good news is we're no longer we no longer have the shadow. We have the substance. Aren't you happy? We no longer have the shadow. The shadow's not as, as good as the substance. That's what, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. New Testament Christians are no longer held to covenant Sabbath rules. They're not held to the instructions that were given to the nation of Israel concerning the Sabbath and the rules that went with it, the law. But as New Testament or New Covenant Christians, I would say this, it's still valuable for us to set aside time for the Lord. It's time for us to reflect. I would never say that any Christian should be working seven days a week. They should be observing and taking a day of reflection. And that's why for most Christians, it's, it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's why we gather together. We have time of reflection. The Jews were to reflect on God as creator. They were to reflect on that Sabbath day about how they had been delivered from the bondage of slavery from the Egyptians. God didn't want them to forget those things. Now look at, that's a long way to get into our text. But, I'm gonna, uh, but I wanted to make that clear because going forward, and if you read through your Gospels, you're going to see numerous times through the Gospels where the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus on the Sabbath. Look at your Bibles, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. And Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Luke tells us, that it was his right hand. 
In the Greek, it actually gives us uh, some indication that this was probably uh, came from an accident. He had damage to his hand. Uh, another translation reads his hand was paralyzed. So he had this paralyzed hand. He had this hand that was unable really to work anymore. And it says in verse 2, so they, speaking about the Pharisees, they watched closely whether Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. <laughs> Can you picture them? Uh, there, you know, what that looked like as Jesus walked into that synagogue there in Capernaum? There would have been uh, some seats that would have been at the front of the synagogue. That's the place that the Pharisees would have been sitting. They would have had on the proper clothing that would identify them as Pharisees. They would have been sitting up front. And what's interesting is that when Jesus came into this synagogue, he came in knowing what was going to happen. So here's these Pharisees that are watching Jesus closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. That was an issue. The real motive was this at the end of verse 2 so that they might accuse him. You see, they weren't there because they wanted to dialogue about theological issues about the Sabbath. They weren't there to, to have a discussion over these things. They were there watching closely that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, do you think Jesus knew the man with the withered hand was going to be there in the synagogue that day? He tells him, step forward. And why would Jesus do it? Here's the, here's the Pharisee sitting up front for all to see. The others that were gathered there in the synagogue. And Jesus tells the man to step forward. In other words, step forward so all can see. So all that are in view of this. And then Jesus says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And then look what it says. They didn't want to have any discussion about that. They kept silent. But they kept silent. Why? Because Jesus knew exactly what to say, the right timing to say something, and they didn't have anything they could say to that. He stopped their mouths, but they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them, look what, how he looked around at them though, with anger, righteous anger, like he did with the money changers when he turned over the money changers and that righteous anger as he tied that whip. You see, God hates religion. He hates it when people put their religion above mercy and love and compassion for people. But when he looked around and he, in a, in a sense, I think he caught eye contact with these Pharisees. They saw in his face that he was displeased, that he was angered towards them. Being grieved, we're told. He looked around at them and Jesus was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. 
And he says to them, he says to the man, he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees, look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Radical. They, they were, they, they, how they might destroy him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath, their Sabbath, something that they had distorted, something that they had made it what it was never intended to be, not realizing that he had just said to them that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that he could do what he wants and he healed a man. He put that above the law because he was being compassionate and merciful towards this man. And not only did they want to go out and, and plot and how they might destroy him, but they joined hands with the Herodians. The Herodians were those Jews that they supported the Herods of Rome. They were disliked typically by the Pharisees. But here they are joining hands plotting with them how they might destroy Jesus. Jesus earlier had healed a man in chapter 1, verse 25 with an unclean spirit. And we're told that He did it on the Sabbath. We're told in Verse 39 of chapter 1, that Jesus preached in the synagogues throughout Galilee, casting out demons on the Sabbath. We read in chapter 2, uh, where we just read in verse 23, that Jesus and His disciples went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 13, verse 14, we read, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. They weren't even allowed to heal. To they, the, the, what they had made the Sabbath into is that if you cut your hand, you had to you know, put some temporary bandage on that just to hold you over and you'll fix it the next day. Don't put any ointment on it. Don't do anything with it. Wait till the Sabbath is done. Then you can deal with it. They did that with every minute detail. And they turned the Sabbath into something that was never intended to be. He says, with indignation, because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and He said to the crowd, there are six days, listen to this, He healed somebody on the Sabbath. And then he's saying, there are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them on those six days and not on the Sabbath day. Don't you do that on the Sabbath day. Don't you heal a person on the Sabbath. And to them, that was breaking their law. The law of God. They're speaking to the Lord of the Sabbath and being angered at Him that he would have compassion upon a man with a withered hand that probably couldn't work anymore. 
I didn't have the ability to. And he heals them in their presence on the Sabbath. That was worthy of taking him outside and plotting with the Herodians to destroy him. You see, it was a hard issue. It really didn't have anything to do with the law. It had to do with their hearts. Do you see what religion without a relationship will do to a person? To make somebody religious? Churches that are religious? Churches that are legalistic? That impose things upon people? They do it today like the Pharisees did then. Why do we call them religious rulers? Quite often we refer to them as religious rulers. And, and James says this about religion. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's not what they were doing. They weren't operating out of pure religion. They had no concern or compassion for those that were even being healed. We read on another occasion in Luke uh, 14, it says, Now it happened as Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. There it is again. I mean, they're watching closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers, which are the scribes, the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it says again that they kept silent. And he took him and he healed him and he let him go. And Jesus answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? He's calling him out on the carpet over something that he knew that they would do. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda who had this infirmity, and he had it for 38 years. This infirmity in his flesh. Jesus healed the man that day on the Sabbath. And we're told that he, he, Jesus said to him, take up your bed and walk. And the man departed and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, we're told, the Jews persecuted Jesus and they sought to kill him because he had done this. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father, listen to what he says to them, My father has been working until now. And I have been working. My father's been working. And I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus never ran from opposition. He never, you know, he, he, he stood up for truth. 
He stood up for what was right, what was compassionate, what was the right thing to do. What's interesting about these scribes and Pharisees is that they were strict Sabbath keepers, but they had no rest. They had no rest. And that's what legalism will do. That's what the law will do. It'll never give you rest. As a matter of fact, somebody that's under the bondage of the law, it should actually make them want to run to the cross. Let me get to the cross that I might have rest, that I might have freedom. When Jesus came into this world, He came to bring rest. True rest never comes from keeping the law. True rest is found when man ceases to work for his salvation. Have you ever been in that mode in your life? You know, I I was water baptized. I I go to church every week. I do this. I, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. There's no rest in that. You're always striving to want to be right with God. And you can't find rest. But you can find it when you finally come to Christ and realize what He has done. It's no longer an abundance, a bunch of rules and regulations. I have rest in Christ. When Jesus, in chapter 3, back in Mark, entered that synagogue on the Sabbath day, and it says, again. He enters it again. He knew that these Pharisees were there. He knew that the man with the withered hand was in there. He knew the confrontation that he was going to have with them. He could have simply just said, you know what? Hey, that man's had a withered hand for a while. Let's wait until tomorrow. And then we'll heal him. And then we'll avoid all this confrontation with these Pharisees. But he went into the synagogue. And he went in knowing that he was going to have this confrontation. And then they were watching him closely, how they might accuse him. He knew that. You see, if you live for Christ, if you make a stand for the gospel, for truth, do you think people are watching you? They'll watch you very, if you hide in the shadows, you don't make a stand for Christ, nobody's going to be watching you. No one's going to be concerned with you. Just make a stand for the Lord. And see if you won't have people watching you very closely, observing you. Some of them even hoping that you'll mess up. That's what they were doing with the Lord. If you live for Christ, if you stand for truth, know this, people are watching. That's a good thing, by the way. If people are watching you, because of your changed life. But you would think that these religious leaders would have been watching closely to see a miracle. They would have been watching closely because they they knew this man had this paralyzed hand and that Jesus could actually heal him. We already saw how he healed others. You would think that they were sitting there watching intently and closely 
that his hand would be healed. That it would be made whole again. That they would have compassion upon this man. But you see, religion won't let that happen. It won't allow them. Because see, they were being threatened. It was a hard issue. When Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, step forward. In a sense, Jesus is setting the stage right now for this encounter. He says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Those are words of wisdom, aren't they? Those are words that they should have taken notice of. But they kept silent. They kept silent because they weren't in there for any other reason other than to trap Jesus. Legalism in the church back in Paul's day, early church. Legalism in the church today is very, very damaging to the body of Christ. Paul put his life on the line against the Judaizers. Remember that most of his persecution came from the religious people. And church history, all the way through church history, you can follow religiosity, legalism within the church and see the damage that it has done to the body of Christ. You see, when somebody is legalistic, they're rigid. They're inflexible. They lack mercy towards people. They lack compassion and love towards people. They're into rules. They're into regulations. They're into doing this and not doing that. They're hypocritical quite often. They're judgmental towards people. They're more concerned with the outside of the cup than they are with the inside of the cup. And when Jesus was angered and He condemned them on that day, they still felt justified in their their hearts and minds. That's how blinding religion can be to people within the laws and the traditions of the Pharisees, there was the written law, but there was also the oral law. And the written law came from God and the oral law, they mixed up a lot of things with the written law. They made it be a lot of things that that God never intended it to be. That was man's work. That was man's law. That was man's traditions. If you read in Matthew 23, you'll see that Jesus pronounces seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees for their religiosity. If Jesus pronounces a woe against somebody, that's worthy of sitting up and taking notice. You're doing something very bad if the Lord pronounces a woe against you. When Jesus, in verse 5, and we're almost done, when Jesus had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. 
he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Somebody that was simply there showing compassion, showing love, healing people, forgiving sins, doing all of those things that could bring peace and restoration to a human being. And these Pharisees were looking for how they might destroy him. As we continue on through the Gospels, what we're going to see as we go on this journey all the way to the cross is that this is just the beginning. It's going to intensify to the point that they will destroy him on the cross. They'll kill him physically. From from this occasion here that we're reading in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then you end up at the cross, and they're nailing him to a cross. That's what religion will do. That's how ugly religion can be. It'll cause people to turn away from the Lord. You know why? Because there's a lot of people that actually like religion. Did you know that? They actually like it. Why? How do we know that? How many religions do we have in the world that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? People like religion. And the reason why they like religion is because, you know, religion can give me a set of rules to keep. And if I keep those set of rules, surely God will have mercy upon me someday. If I just do this, if I just do that, surely that's what God expects from me. But to repent and to turn to Jesus Christ with all of our failure and sin and say, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. I can't be saved. I can't. I'll never enter into heaven apart from you, apart from your saving grace in my life. And that's the problem. The people refuse to repent. They refuse to believe that Jesus is the only way. And they'll put stock in their religion. They'll put stock in their rules and regulations. And somehow they'll just hope that someday that's sufficient. But Jesus said of that day, He said there's going to be many that are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in Your name? Cast out demons, do all these marvelous works. And you know what the Lord's response is to them? On that day, depart from me for I never knew you. I didn't once know you and then I don't know you anymore. I never knew you. You did it all in the name of religion. Your whole life was consumed with religion and not a relationship with the living God. My prayer is that everyone in this room here, we all know, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. If you do, then I can tell you this, you have rest. You have true rest. 
Because if you understand what Christ has done for you on the cross, what he accomplished, how, how the extent that Christ went to so that you and I can have rest. Wow. That's my prayers that all of us have that. If you don't have rest, then you're not looking to Jesus. You're looking to other things. If you don't have rest and you need to pray to have that rest, come and see me afterwards. I want to pray with you. And so, read ahead. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Read ahead. Go on this journey as we go through this as a church. Go on this journey through the Gospel of Mark, gleaning everything you can from looking at Jesus and looking how, you know what I mean? Because, man, we, there's so much that we can learn from looking at the life of Christ and apply it to our lives.